I want to begin this afternoon by asking you a question. Who is your best friend? Now be careful before you answer that, not only because somebody who's alongside of you may be surprised by your answer and you want to think about it a little bit more before you voice that answer, but because you want to make sure that you truly weigh all of your options. Imagine if you were at a church picnic and you were one of the captains selected for a church picnic basketball game. And you actually had the opportunity to pick first. And you look around and you see familiar faces, some familiar heights. You see somebody who's 5'10", somebody who's 5'6", somebody who's 6'1". But then you see a guest who showed up at the church picnic. A 7'2", professional basketball player. Who are you picking first? You're not picking me first. If you want to win, you're picking that guest first. And in like manner, there is a friend who stands head and shoulders above all other options. The Lord Jesus Christ. Think of how amazing it is. This one who was identified as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This one who even addressed his hearers, and on an occasion like in Luke chapter 12, as friends. This one who told his disciples that he called them friends, and he did tell them also, by the way, in John chapter 15, verse 14, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you, which was a kind of early teaching on how to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, obedience being one of the tests to show whether a person is truly saved or not. But to think that that identification can be shared by us, that is thrilling. I think sometimes for us, if you're like me, then maybe you can get kind of confused by that identification. Because you're like, well, I'm not just a friend of Jesus. I am the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm part of the collection of the church, which is the bride of Christ. And I want to encourage you, if the maiden from the Song of Solomon could say of her beloved, this is my beloved, This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 16. Then us, as the collective bride of Christ, can say in like manner, This is my beloved. This is my friend, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. And one of the reasons why we ought to say with gusto, What a friend I have in Jesus is because he is faithful. Joseph Scriven was right when he wrote what would later come to be known as the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. The man suffered quite a bit. He was uh, just about to get married. He uh, was a day away from being married and his fiancée died via drowning the day before he was to be married to her. And then when he was going to be married again another time, not too long before the wedding, his second fiancée died. He, in light of certain circumstances in his life, wasn't able to visit his mother when she had become ill. And so during that time he penned for her a poem. A poem that would come to be known as the hymn we know, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And he was right, Joseph Scriven, when he penned the words, Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? And the good news for us, Christian, is that he came and found us so that we would be his friends. And the answer to the question is an easy answer, right? 
No, (laughs) we cannot find a friend as faithful as him. Thanks be to God for faithful friends. But can we find a friend so faithful? I mean, so faithful to share and sympathize with all of our infirmities and sorrows? The answer is no. None like him. And as we get into our text this afternoon, we are going to see his faithfulness displayed to the Apostle Paul. And along the way, I think quite often, we will be reminded of his faithfulness towards us. But before we see Jesus in the text, we are going to see Alexander. And Alexander is not like Jesus. He was not like Jesus. Alexander was the antagonist that we see in the passage before us. If you would liken Jesus to the protagonist, however you want to define that, as the the, the chief person in the story, oftentimes associated with the good guy. Jesus is that. He's the chief person. He is the hero. Alexander is the antagonist. So before we see the Lord who is faithful, we will see the enemy who opposed the work of the Lord, and particularly the apostle Paul, Alexander. We begin in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, where we read, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Paul is, as we know, getting ready to close this epistle. He's writing as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, but he has some personal concerns, if you will, but theology is doubtless being taught along the way as well. In verse 9, which we studied last week, we saw that he told Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. He knew that the time of his departure was at hand. He knew that the time within the hourglass, so to speak, the sand, was running out. So he tells Timothy to come to him soon. Then he gives a reason why, an immediate reason. Verse 10, he says, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. So Demas could have been of some use to Paul, but having this love for the world, which was greater than his love for Paul at least, led him to abandon, forsake, desert Paul. But there were others who left Paul too, but the implication is that they left to do ministry. Titus was one such example, and Crescens was another who we saw in verse 10. In verse 11, we saw that Paul at this moment, he was not alone. Luke was with him. Luke, the beloved physician, the historian, the gospel writer, and the faithful friend was with him. But then Paul told Timothy, when you come, it's not just about you coming, but I need you to stop and I need you to pick up someone, namely Mark. He says, pick up Mark because he is useful to me for ministry. But he didn't want Timothy just to pick up Mark. And he didn't want Timothy just to arrive. He wanted him to pick up some other things as well. In verse 13, we see that he told Timothy, When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. So what Paul may be doing right now, as he references what he left at Troas, he may be recalling the location where he was arrested. Maybe. And maybe having some insight to his forthcoming arrest, he entrusted things that were of value to a man named Carpus in Troas. And perhaps along this train of thought, he is reminded of the one who was the impetus to his arrest, namely Alexander. Now this Alexander is identified by Paul as Alexander the coppersmith. Alexander the coppersmith. He may or may not have been the same Alexander that was referenced in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. 
Remember, Paul spoke about a man by the name of Alexander that he handed over to Satan so that he might be taught not to blaspheme. The idea was that there was this man, Alexander, and he wasn't the only one, but he was in Ephesus and he was teaching things that were blasphemous. And Paul issues this this call of excommunication and he personally oversees the excommunication of this man and perhaps this Alexander is the same one. Now the reason why there is some dispute is because he's identified here as Alexander the coppersmith. There he is not. So let's survey both possibilities. If this man was a different man than that Alexander, being a coppersmith, perhaps he was an idol maker whose business suffered as a result of Paul's ministry. If that were so, he wouldn't be the first. Take, for instance, Demetrius. We see him referenced in Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 27. He was a silversmith. And when Paul came to town and he was preaching the gospel and people were turning to the living God and away from idols, that was bad for business if you were an idol maker. So the idol makers got up in arms. Like, what's happening? People aren't buying our idols to Artemis anymore. And if this man, I mean, a little bit on the lower rung, I guess, because he's a coppersmith and not a silversmith, and if this man was losing business because of Paul's ministry, maybe he hated Paul as a result. Or he could have been the same Alexander that was referenced in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. The man who was excommunicated by the Apostle Paul and apparently, if he's the same guy, unrepentant. Whatever the exact details were, what is clear is, as Paul put it, Alexander did me much harm. Now, how exactly did Alexander do much harm to Paul? Well, we're not told explicitly in the text, but I do think there are a couple of hints. First, I'll note the Greek word here for did is a word that could be used as a legal term to speak of an informant. Perhaps even somebody who testified falsely against Paul. So what may be going on is that Alexander served in a kind of Judas Iscariot type role. And he informed on the Apostle Paul. Such is a legitimate um, use of this word as it seemed to be used in classical Greek. And that's possibly what's going on here. Second, in the following verse, we do see clearly something that he did. He vigorously opposed Christian teaching. So the kind of sound doctrine that Paul would teach and that Timothy would preach, he opposed it. Now, where did he do this? Did he rile up crowds like we see others do at other points in the book of Acts? Maybe that's something that he did. Did he inform upon the Apostle Paul and lead to his arrest? There's a good possibility that that's what he did. Did he even show up, perhaps, at Paul's first hearing? And maybe as Paul continues in verse 16 and mentions his first trial, did Alexander oppose him even there and do his best to make sure that Paul would not get off even as he was let off free during his first Roman imprisonment. Those are all legitimate possibilities and maybe some measure of all three of those things happening. What is doubtless is that he did harm to the Apostle Paul. Please note, by the way, the Apostle Paul was not impenetrable. right? He wasn't above harm. It's not like, oh, if I walk with God, I'm not going to be harmed. Actually, the Scripture promises the opposite. right? Paul had told Timothy that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will suffer persecution. So it's not like, oh, what did Paul do wrong that this guy was able to harm him? No, he was walking in obedience 
And it's more the exception to not be in a place of persecution or persecuted for the gospel than it is the rule, biblically speaking. Now notice also what Paul said here. Paul was not sinfully brooding over this man. Second half of verse 14 reads, The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Now note that. Alexander did Paul much harm. He might have been the man who is the impetus to Paul being on death row at this moment as Paul is writing this. He did him much harm. But Paul's not wringing his hands together, figuring out how to get revenge upon this man. No, no. He says, the Lord will repay him. Alexander did Paul much harm, and the Lord saw it. And the Lord would make sure that Alexander, in due time, paid for it. In this, I think Paul reminds us of his previous instruction to the Church of Rome, instruction that also included an Old Testament quotation. In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, the Apostle Paul wrote the following, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Like David who knew that he did not have to raise up his hand against Saul. He trusts that the Lord would strike down Saul in the Lord's time. You see that very clearly in 1 Samuel 26, verses 10 and 11. Paul's like that in this moment. I don't have to lift my hand against him. The Lord will deal with him. The Lord is identified by the psalmist in Psalm 94, verse 1, as the God to whom vengeance belongs. He had just identified Jesus as the righteous judge. And as the righteous judge of all the earth, he will do right. And at the end of the day, Alexander would not escape justice. The Lord saw what Alexander did to Paul. And I would say to us, every Christian can take solace in the fact that though a person may escape temporal justice, they cannot escape the divine judge. Justice delayed is by no means justice denied. That makes the cross all the more precious to every Christian who knows that the only reason why they will not experience justice for the sins that they've committed against God and others is because one has satisfied the justice of God on our behalf, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you also to notice that Paul a man who was absolutely convinced of God's sovereignty. Like Paul wasn't weak on the doctrine of God's sovereignty, but look, he nonetheless tells Timothy in verse 15 that he needed to be careful. He told him, be on guard against him yourself. Paul had been harmed by this man, and he knew that Timothy could be harmed by this man as well. So Paul didn't say, you know what, God's sovereign and whatever's going to happen is going to happen. So, you know, don't worry about anything. No, he told him, no, you have a responsibility. Be on guard against this man. As a matter of fact, using the present tense here, the implication is that that guard needed to be up with respect to this man continuously. Continuously. The rationale behind all of this carefulness we see it in the second half of verse 15. For he vigorously opposed our teaching. That's strong language. Alexander was not a nonchalant opponent of Christianity. He exceedingly, vigorously, that idea of that word is exceedingly, it's even put, additionally, note this, it's even put in the emphatic position in the clause. 
So it's like Paul is like italicizing this. It's like he's underlying it. It's like he has exceedingly opposed our teaching. The word for opposed, same word that we saw not too long ago in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, when Paul was speaking of Janus and Jambres-like false teachers. Remember those guys? They were the sorcerers, those magicians who served in Pharaoh's court back in the book of Exodus. We see them, though they're not named. And they opposed Moses and they opposed the, the work of God. And the false teachers were standing in their stead. Well, so was Alexander, if you might, if you will. He opposed our teaching, Paul said. Our teaching could be rendered literally as our words or our message. Given Paul's forthcoming reference to his trial, such could have been, could have been, the main stage for Alexander's opposition. Now, I want us to note this. Though Alexander did harm to Paul, he can nonetheless be instructive to every one of us. Paul said concerning Alexander, concerning what he did to him, what Alexander did to Paul, that the Lord would repay him. But it's good for us to be reminded that according to Romans chapter 2, verse 6, Paul has noted that God will repay every man according to his deeds. There is coming a day when God will repay every man according to his deeds. For everyone who is outside of Christ, that is bad news. For those who are in Christ, there's a gracious rewarding, undeserved rewards for the, for the things that we've done in Jesus' name that don't get burned up, to use kind of imagery from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But for everyone who is outside of Christ, there is coming a moment where there is an accounting that is going to happen. When every idle word that has been spoken will be brought into the judgment. When God will open the books and it will lead to a sentencing. Every unrepentant act of rebellion will be accounted for and the unmistakable sentence the resulting sentence is unmistakably clear unending punishment for a humanly unpayable debt against an infinitely great God but there is good news for the one who comes to Christ for the one who sees the Son of God as the Savior, as the Messiah, as the one who is the hero of the story, dying in the place of sinners and rising for the justification of all who would believe. The writer of Hebrews uses this kind of language, quoting from the Old Testament, speaking of God's view towards us in the cross, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And then he goes on and he says in verse 18, that there is no longer, as a result of that, there's no longer a need of an offering for sin. Because it's been put away via the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So learn from Alexander. Alexander, according to what Paul was saying here, was going to be repaid for his evil. Not only against Paul, but ultimately against anyone, and most ultimately against God. But why pay for sins in the lake of fire? When you can come to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has satisfied the sin debt on behalf of all who believe on Him for the forgiveness of sins, learn from Alexander so that you don't end up like Alexander, at least as he's depicted in this text. Well, that brings us to verse 16. Paul continues, and he's remembering now his first defense. He says, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. When Paul wrote, at my first defense, he's speaking of his first trial, his first hearing in this most recent legal process. That's what he's speaking about. 
The word for defense here is a Greek word, apologia. It means defense. It could be used in different ways. Every Christian is to be ready to give a, a defense for the hope that is within them. It's where we get our English word apologetics from. Paul was giving an apologia. He was giving a defense. He wasn't giving a remorseful public apology in the way that we might think of it. That's not what he was doing. He was giving a public defense. And the kind of language here speaks of a defense in its legal setting. There was an accusation against him, and he would give a defense. But doubtless, even in his legal defense, as we see in examples in the book of Acts, his legal defense would include a defense of the faith and a proclamation of the Christ that he believed in. So here he is, and he says, rehearsing and looking back to that moment, at this first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. Now what might make that particularly surprising is how many godly Christians there were in Rome. The Christians in Rome weren't exactly at the bottom of the barrel of obedience. In Romans chapter 1, verse 8, when Paul, some years earlier, wrote to the church of Rome, he told them that their faith was spoken of all over the world. You get to the end of Paul's epistle to the church of Rome, in Romans 16, you really see this in verses 3 through 15, you just see a kind of who's who of body of Christ members that are you know, largely unknown by us. But you just love to see the way in which Paul speaks of them and who's his co-laborer, who risked their necks for his life, and so on. It's beautiful. And to think that whether it was Roman Christians or non-Roman Christians who were there with him and then left him, it's amazing to think that no one was alongside of him. Now, doubtless, there were some who were on the way. You would think that somebody like Luke, Onesiphorus, you would think like brothers like this were on the way. We know Onesiphorus traveled and he searched throughout Rome to find the Apostle Paul. Apparently he wasn't there yet during Paul's first trial. Luke, who is with Paul at this moment, wasn't there at his first trial. So there were brothers who were either on mission like Timothy was or brothers who were in transit. But nonetheless, those who were there departed. And think of what that would mean for Paul. So now, all of a sudden, you have to give a defense, but there's nobody offering supplemental and supporting defense or testimony to what you're saying. You're on your own now. What does that say about you? Think of what it would be like to be in a room full of people who are adversarial, some of whom were hoping, likely, that they could put him to death as a result of this trial. And there he is by himself. No one supported him. The language there speaks of being alongside of him. But all forsook him. They deserted him. Interestingly, the same word is used here that was used earlier for Demas in verse 10. They deserted him. And in this, the Apostle Paul was walking in the footsteps of his Savior who could empathize with him knowing what it was like to be forsaken and abandoned by friends. It was during the Upper Room Discourse, in John chapter 16, verse 32, reading from the first half of the verse, that Jesus told His disciples, Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and you will leave Me alone. And they did. You could look in a place like Matthew chapter 26, verse 57, to see that. Paul served a Savior who could relate 
to being deserted and abandoned by friends. For me, I think it's amazing to think of how this one, this, this shepherd, who suffered the scattering of sheep, never for a split second thought twice about laying his life down for the sheep. Even though they abandoned him, he wouldn't think twice about dying for them. That was the mission. And the Apostle Paul in this moment, that he's thinking back to, he's walking in the footsteps of his Savior. Now, by way of some instruction for us, first a little bit more context, then some application. It's not hard to understand or imagine what caused the desertion, right? What caused the desertion? Fear. Okay, well then what caused the fear? The fear of persecution. Think about what Paul had told Timothy earlier. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, we saw Paul tell Timothy that he should not be ashamed in suffering for the Lord. He should not be ashamed of Paul, the Lord's prisoner, but he should join with Paul in suffering for the gospel. Why would Paul say that? Because likely if Timothy identified with Paul, he was going to suffer for the gospel. He could even be sentenced prospectively to death row like Paul was. And doubtless, there were many Christians who scattered as a result of the persecution. Now, we don't know the exact details. Nero, earlier, some years earlier, uh, had proven to not be a friend of Christians when he set the city of Rome on fire, and he blamed the Christians for that. At what point uh, this is within the Neronian persecution, we don't know exactly. Is this the beginning of it? Has it started to happen yet to a greater degree? We don't know all the details. But I would say this, it's pretty easy to think that Christians were fearful about the prospect of vicious persecution, regardless of what point in the persecution of Nero they found themselves in. And the prospect of persecution or imprisonment or death has a way of both revealing fair-weather friends and fair-weather Christians. Now what do we do in light of that? Well, we don't make the mistake that somebody like Peter made and say, yes, even if all other Christians do that, I will never do that. No, pride precipitates falling and stumbling. So we don't do that. Rather, we would do well to pray like the psalmist prayed in Psalm 119, verse 117, the first half of the verse, hold me up and I shall be safe. We don't look at those who abandoned the Apostle Paul, and it was wrong what they did. Paul's going to make that clear. So we're not like, you know, kind of just glazing over that and saying it's not a big deal. You know, Christians are weak, and everybody's fallen, everybody's got a fallen frame, and everybody sins, and everybody does stuff wrong. No, we're not saying that. It was serious what they did, and it was wrong. Paul is going to make that clear. But we also do not have a kind of condescending sneer. How could they, they do that? Rather, we look at this text and we say, wow, they fled from Paul, and they fled as a result of doubtless persecution. So we pray like the psalmist, hold me up and I shall be safe. And even as we pray that, we have confidence that we will be held up. So we're petitioning it, but we're also, by the grace of God, expecting it. Because His mighty hand, His mighty righteous right arm upholds me. I am going to be safe and brought safely into the heavenly kingdom, not because of my own internal strength and fortitude, but because I am graciously upheld by a Savior. Who bought me with his own blood. Now, consider also Paul's reaction to those who deserted him. He said, may it not be counted against them. 
Now, I want to note the obvious here because it could be easily overlooked. The implication is that they did something wrong. They sinned against the apostle. I think a lot of times, and there's something good about this, but there's also something bad about this. A lot of times in like, you know, modern day Christianity that we can think like, you know, everybody's fallen, everybody makes mistakes, and nothing's really a big deal because everybody sins. No, what was wrong what they did? They abandoned the Apostle Paul. They should have been there. They should have been friends that stuck near to him. And think about what Jesus even told followers of his. That anyone who was going to follow him, that they had to be ready to take up a cross. Like this was part of the deal. It wasn't like a hidden part of Christianity. Jesus made it abundantly clear. So what I first want us to see is that what they did was wrong. They should have been there for him and they weren't. That's why Paul is saying, may it not be counted against them. Because the idea was it could be counted against them. And in this moment, he reminds me of Stephen who prayed for his persecutors even as they were stoning him. We see that in Acts chapter 7. He reminds me of Jesus, who upon the cross prayed, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. But the interesting thing here is that Paul was speaking about those, and I can't say this with definitude, but he was speaking about those who were likely brethren, at least in some cases. I don't think necessarily every one of these guys who abandoned him were apostates. Maybe they were. I can't say that with definitude. But you could just imagine a lot of Christians just kind of shrinking in that moment. Maybe something like what happened to Mark earlier in the missionary journey when he was with Paul and Barnabas. But then he kind of left the mission field and he left where he should have been. At least by the way Paul was evaluating it and so on. And he's praying for them. May it not be counted against them. And here we are reminded of one of those quintessential characteristics of a Christian. The Christian are the forgiving. And it's because Christians are forgiven that they are the forgiving. And here the Apostle Paul is praying. And he's using the language of the forgiven. When your sin debt has been paid by the blood of the Son of God... Even when it's hard, you are quick to forgive those who have sinned against you. Because you think to yourself, my debt, which was humanly unpayable against an infinitely holy God, has been paid by the blood of the Son of God. Whatever somebody has done against me does not even compare to what I have done to God, yet alone others. So Paul is walking here in the characteristic of, one of the quintessential characteristics of Christianity, forgiveness. Now we get to verse 17. I love this verse. I think you probably do already, but I, hopefully you'll love it more as we walk through it. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. So at Paul's first defense, all had left him. But he was not alone. He wrote, but the Lord stood by me, stood with me, and strengthened me. Now in the previous verse, we considered how Jesus, Paul's Savior, knew what it was like to be abandoned by friends. He told his disciples in John 16.32 that they would be scattered and that they would leave him alone. But I didn't read the entirety of the verse because I wanted you to hear it now. In the second half of that verse, Jesus went on to tell more of the story. After telling them that they would be scattered and that he would be left alone, he went on to say, And yet I am not alone, 
because the Father is with me. And even as the Father was with the Son amidst fleeing friends, so was the Lord with Paul amidst fleeing friends. He is, after all, the friend above all friends that sticks closer than any brother. He is an ever-present help. And perhaps you've experienced something of this when you've been in times of dire straits or times of severe loneliness, when you've felt abandoned or something like that. And it was in those moments that you were particularly mindful of the Lord's nearness. Like, it was interesting. Like, it was a season in which everything just kind of collapsed around me, but the Lord stood by me. I think in my Christian life, when I think of first coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, it wasn't too long after that, as I started sharing the gospel with others, as I started making choices in my life to separate myself from sinful behaviors that were just a part of living in the world, that all of a sudden it felt like the world around me collapsed. I had dear and precious family members look at me and say, you're a disgrace to the family because I had turned away from Roman Catholicism and trusting in my own works for salvation, yet alone the, the sacraments and, and so on. I remember friends that I would talk to and I would share the gospel with them and I would talk to them and answer questions and it looked like it was going well and it looked like they were enjoying the conversation and asking questions and then I would find out that they thought of me as a fanatic it seemed like all those relationships that I held dear kind of started to collapse. But yet, during that season of my life, it was an interesting season. I remember I was working at a brokerage in the city as an intern while going to, uh, going to college. And I would come home at night and I would kneel by my bed. I would read, among other things, the Gospel of John. But I spent a lot of time in the Gospel of John in those days, particularly John 15. And I would just weep. And I felt so alone. I'm like, man, between family and friends and a relationship and all of these things just kind of collapsing around me, it's like everything is gone. But yet, I felt such a closeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the context isn't apples to apples to the Apostle Paul, but I just want to encourage you, even in times of dire straits, even in place of great loneliness or abandonment, if you are in Christ, rest assured, you are not alone. It's as though if you would look right alongside of you, whichever way you look, He's right there. He's actually even closer than that. He's inside of you. Now, I want us to note this as well. The Lord not only stood with Paul, but He strengthened him. See, there wasn't just comfort in the Lord's presence, but with the Lord's presence came strengthening. The verb itself that's used here speaks of kind of an imparting of power. It's like the Lord put strength into Paul. That's the kind of language that's used here. And one of the things I love about this kind of language is that when you kind of trace the Apostle Paul's ministry, he's used this kind of language to speak of basically the inception of his Christian life, what the Lord did and how the Lord helped him during his Christian life, and then the help that the Lord was bringing him right at the end of his pilgrim journey. See, what's in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, when, the, when Paul speaks of his conversion, he speaks of the Lord strengthening him and putting him into the ministry. Same word that's used. Then we look in the book of Acts, and we see that as Paul, then Saul, identified more so as, he would go from place to place, synagogue to synagogue, preaching Christ, and he increased all the more in strength. And when we think about his ministry, when he's writing to the Philippians during what's known as his first Roman imprisonment, he speaks of how he has learned to be content in all situations. 
That whether he was abounding and had much, or whether he was abased and had little, he said he learned the secret to contentment. That he could do all things, and this is the context for this verse, Philippians 4.13, that he could do all things through Christ who strengthens him. And here he is that at just about the end of the road, and he's still speaking of how Jesus is strengthening him. Strengthened from beginning all the way through to the very end. So I want you to be encouraged because when you think about the Lord being alongside of you, it's encouraging to know that He's not only alongside of you to comfort you, He's alongside of you to strengthen you. Sometimes uh, when I think about my youth and I think about some situations that I ran into while in grammar school, not so much in high school, a little bit in grammar school, uh, where there were kids who were like, you know, the tough guys, and if they wanted to cause trouble, as a kid, especially if you're an unsafe kid, like, like I was, you start kind of sizing up your options, and you say, okay, wait, if he's coming after me, I'm in trouble, because I'm not going to win this in a one-on-one -on -one kind of battle. But if I have friends who are strong, I might be in a better place. So you start trying to size up who you got around you. Because if I got a strong friend here and a strong friend there, I may not be able to beat him, but he can't beat them unless he's got more people that are like them. So you start kind of like figuring all this out, but you have some measure of peace because you think of who might be alongside of you who is strong. Now, when you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, though, there is nobody stronger than him. Just to illustrate his strength for a moment, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says that he is able to save to the uttermost. That's how strong he is. He could begin the work of salvation, he's the author, and he can complete it. That's how strong he is. But something unique about having him alongside of you is this. That he is not just strong in himself, but he is able to provide enablement to those that he is alongside. He's not just powerful, he's able to provide empowerment to those that he's alongside. And that's the idea of what Paul's speaking about here. The Lord stood by me. So the implication is there's some measure of comfort in the Lord's presence. I'm forsaken, but I'm not alone because he's with me. But then he goes on and he says, and he strengthened me. So this one who was alongside of him strengthened him, put strength into him. And what was the end to which Paul's empowerment was? We don't have to guess. Paul, carried along by the Holy Spirit, tells us rather clearly so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. So here we get an understanding of what the strengthening included. Jesus, this friend who sticks so close and is right with Paul, this friend who's so powerful that he's able to impart strength, he did so so that Paul might be made courageous, Bold, that Paul might have the inner strength that he needed to testify to the gospel, and even in the midst of the situation that he was in, that Paul might have the clarity of thought and clarity of speech to bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the kind of strength that is likely referred to here. So that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished. Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Think of the language that. Jesus used when speaking to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Speaking of Paul, he said the following, that Paul was a chosen vessel of his to bear his name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And here we see that the Lord was strengthening Paul 
to fully accomplish that proclamation. The apostle to the Gentiles was finishing his apostolic course with proclamation to the Gentiles, perhaps even Nero himself. And Jesus is strengthening him so that he could finish the task with which he was tasked. This is the kind of thing that Jesus promised his disciples during the Olivet Discourse. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus told them that they would be brought before rulers and kings for his namesake. Luke chapter 21, verse 12. In verse 13, he told them that this would be an occasion for testimony. Like, you're going to be brought before kings, but there's a reason. It's going to be an occasion for you to give public testimony to the grace of God and the gospel. But then in verse 15, he went on to tell them that he would give them a mouth and wisdom with which all of their enemies would not be able to contradict or withstand. It's the kind of thing that Jesus was doing for Paul. And it's the kind of thing that I think every believer can look at and say, if I ever found myself in that position, I would expect for the same Jesus to impart such a mouth and wisdom to me so that I may be able to proclaim Him as I ought to, even in the most difficult of environments. Principally speaking, I would like you to see this as well. Notice, Paul wasn't just on his own to finish the task with which he was tasked. Who was helping him to make sure he did it? The Lord Jesus strengthened him so that the proclamation might be fully accomplished. This is what he was tasked with. And yet here is Jesus helping him to make sure that he fulfills his stewardship. And I think in all of our lives, when we think of our responsibilities as Christians, when we think about the gifts that God has given us and what we are called to do, there should be a sense in which we look to God and say, Lord, I cannot do this on my own. I don't want to do it in my own strength. I want to do it leaning upon and trusting in the strength that you yourself provide. And if I'm going to walk in the good works that you've prepared beforehand for me to walk in, if I'm going to be faithful to this stewardship, my confidence is in you strengthening me all the way through. And then he he concludes with this statement, And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Well, Commentators have numerous uh, opinions, understandable ones, about who the lion refers to here. Uh, Does the lion refer to Nero? Is is Nero the lion who's being spoken of here, particularly when you think of the vicious and barbarous way in which Nero persecuted Christians? Is Paul speaking about the the lions of the Roman amphitheater? Some commentators say, no, it's not the case because they would argue uh, a Roman citizen wouldn't be thrown to the lions like that. Is he speaking about Satan? We know in 1 Peter 5, we see that Satan is described as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, Calvin noted the following. He said, I think that Paul uses this expression to indicate danger in general, as if he were saying, out of the blazing fire or from the jaws of death. And indeed, Paul was delivered from mortal and spiritual danger. He was. He, in a physical sense, he would live. Right? He would be spared from dying in that moment. So he would escape the sword at that moment and he would go on to write Second Timothy to send other Christians to other places. He was able for a little while longer to continue to do ministry because he was alive. 
But, doubtless, Satan, above all, desired to see him crumble under the pressure of intimidation, abandonment, and persecution, as likely did his persecutors. But God delivered him. And he was empowered to witness truthfully and boldly, and he didn't shrink back. He proclaimed the message he was called to proclaim. It is also worth noting, as Kent Hughes does, that Paul may have been meditating upon Psalm 22. That psalm which is known as the Psalm of the Cross. And when you look at that psalm, it's a psalm of David, but you could see the Messiah speaking through David in that psalm. It's interesting. When you get to verse 21, we see the expression, Save me from the lion's mouth. And maybe Paul, on the brink of martyrdom, during his first trial, not knowing exactly what awaited him, maybe, he's thinking along the lines of Psalm 22. Well, Paul was confident of the Lord's ultimate deliverance, and he makes that clear in the next verse. We won't consider this verse in its entirety. We will briefly look at it today, and then, Lord willing, next time, we will consider it uh, in further detail. Verse 18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As we get ready to close this message, I want us to see where Paul ends. All of this consideration leads Paul to what place? To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's where this thinking drives Paul. It doesn't drive him to despair. It drives him to praise. He's thinking about his journey, especially the end of it right now. He's thinking about being forsaken, but he's thinking of the Lord sticking right alongside of him. He's thinking of being strengthened. I would have to imagine that he's thinking of the ways in which Jesus has strengthened him throughout his ministry. How faithful the Lord has been to him. And then he says in verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. So whether it's Nero, whether it's Alexander, whether it's Satan, whoever it is, the Lord will rescue me from every single evil deed. And even maybe perhaps Paul thinking of himself. The Lord will rescue me from apostasy. He will keep me from denying Him. He'll rescue me from every evil deed. And He will bring me, He'll preserve me, He'll carry me home so that I safely enter His heavenly kingdom. And where does he go from there? Well, where else can you go? He says, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What a friend we have in Jesus. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank You for the One who is our Advocate. We thank You for the One who is the Good Shepherd who laid His life down for the sheep. We thank You for the One who is our ever-present help, that friend that sticks closer than a brother. For the One who is our Bridegroom. And we join with Your Scripture in saying that He is our Beloved, our Friend. And Father, we thank You that we could rely upon Your strength in different points of our lives as Christians, that as we are on this journey, we could trust that You are so faithful and You will keep strengthening us so that whatever You have called us to do by Your grace, Father, our confidence is in You, 
that you will help us so that we will have our hands to the plow of faithful ministry, that we will serve others, whether it's in our church or in our family, wherever we might find ourselves. Father, we are leaning upon the strength that you yourself provide so that we might be faithful to the calling that you've given us as Christians in general and as believers specifically empowered by your Holy Spirit specifically, Lord. Oh, thank you for your nearness to us. Thank you for your great love. To think that you call Abraham your friend in a place like Isaiah 41 and to think that we are friends of the living God. We are the collective bride of your son, sons and daughters of the living God. What a blessed people we are. Father, help us to, as we go on this day, to bask in your faithfulness and by your grace, Heavenly Father, help us to grow in faithfulness as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.